turn to Matthew 1. We're going to look at Matthew 1. And this morning I felt led to talk about a part of the Christmas story that I have never taught on, that I've never really studied that deeply. And this part of the Christmas story and found in Matthew 1, you're not going to see any Hallmark cards with any quotes from it. You're not going to see any Christmas movies that, that talk about this. Luke chapter 2 is kind of the main one that most people focus on, and I've never personally studied this. But my title today is God Can Turn Your Mess Into a Miracle. Anybody get an amen for that? And the, every single gospel, and the gospels are what we call narratives, and what it is is eyewitness account and interviews from people that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, followed Jesus, and the narratives are all different of the Christmas story because each writer is writing to a different group of people. Luke is writing to a man named uh, the most excellent Theophilus, which would have been a Greek person. Theophilus means lover of God. So he sent Luke out to kind of find out if these things that he's heard and believed in Jesus are really true. Did he really walk on water? Did Did he really open blinded eyes? Did he really raise Lazarus from the dead? And, of course, Mark is written to mainly Greeks and then... And then Matthew is written to Jews. John, his gospel and his narrative of Jesus isn't just the announcement that he was born. John takes a different angle because in Matthew 1, we see the, the human origin of Jesus and the geolo- ge- genealogy we're getting ready to look at. But John starts off and gives us the human's origin in Jesus because church, not only is he fully God, but he's fully man. Amen? Amen. He's just as much man as if he wasn't God, and he's just as much God, preexistent, eternal, because John says that I want you to know this about Jesus. He is the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That the announcement that was made to the people of the day, in Luke's gospel, of course, is don't be afraid, fear not, for uh, for I have good tidings of great joy. For unto you, everybody say, unto me. Because sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't just die for the people out there. He died for us individually so that we could come back into relationship with our God. The book of Matthew here at the beginning, he's talking about where Jesus came from. Matthew was writing primarily to Jews, so he lays out Jesus' family tree. Now, I don't know about you, but I've peeked back at my family tree and saw a few crooked branches, y'all. And I wouldn't really want my family tree to be put out there for eternity because the Word of God is eternal. For Forever God's Word is settled in the heavens. Forever this Word is true that is given to us through faithful people. So this isn't this morning a Hallmark Christmas story of the, God, of, of the, the, the birth of Jesus Christ. But I think there's some things here that God would want us to see. Just a few verses. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy because, to be honest, I can't say half of their names. Amen? So in Matthew 1, if you're there, say amen. And we're going to read verses 1 and we're going to read verses 20. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is launching his gospel. He's writing to Jewish people. He is talking about Jesus' origin in the earthly family, who his relatives were, who the people that he's related to here in the gospel. And then he goes on to list the genealogy broken up into threes. In verse 17, if you'll look with me, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to 
the Messiah. Father, for these next few minutes and moments as we open your word, as we always do, we ask that you bless it. We ask that your anointing be here because, Lord, we understand that without your anointing and without you speaking to our hearts and opening our eyes, Lord, sometimes it goes right over our heads. So I pray that the word of God would find rich soil this morning. It would go into the hearts of these precious people that belong to you. They're your people. They're your sheep of your pasture. And I get the honor of sharing the word of God with them today. So, Lord, I ask for my helper to come and that, God, you would help us understand your word today. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So Matthew was written to prove the point that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that were given. And Matthew wants to begin his gospel by helping the people understand that Jesus is the one that had been promised. Perhaps they are like us at times when we're going through a difficult time, when we're going through a dark time, when we're going through trials that we just talked about and Buddy shared just a minute ago that at times we feel like we could not be children of God because oftentimes we follow our feelings instead of having faith in God's word of what he said. And the people, when Jesus finally breaks into the story, when Jesus is finally born in Bethlehem, there were many people that were present that had probably thought, God probably isn't going to fulfill the promise of sending the promised Messiah. God has left us. God has forsaken us. God has forgotten us. But I came to tell some folk this morning that even if you're in the place like those old burly shepherds out on the side of a hill, they weren't looking for anything spiritual. They weren't looking for Messiah. They were just minding their business, doing their everyday routine. And isn't it just like God to come into the picture and begin to announce, fear not, my people, because today, born to you in the city of Bethlehem is Messiah, Jesus the Lord. And these were burly. I love the shepherds in the story. I know that's something we focus on and that's not my main focus this morning, but I got to thinking about the shepherds and the fact that they were the very first ones that were announced that Messiah had shown up. And to be a shepherd in those days in first century Palestine and in the Jewish land, they would have uh, been Burly, tough. I relate to the shepherds because basically they're rednecks, okay? I'll just be straight honest with you. They, they were not, you know, we, we have a picture of Jesus as somewhere between Mr. Rogers and Richard Simmons, don't we? we? We have this completely messed up view of who God really is in the person of Jesus Christ. And I can't, I relate to them because they literally, as shepherds, they would not have been considered a man unless they had protected the flock from a person trying to steal one of the sheep and killed them or killed a predator that was trying to to take one of the flock away. That's why David, when he came along, he said to the people, he said, hey, I've killed the lion and the bear. In other words, he's saying, I'm a man. And these big, burly shepherds were out in their field, minding their own business, were not looking for any kind of encounter with or, or, or about Messiah. And God breaks into the story and begins to announce to these people that, hey, I want you to know that God has not forgotten you. And I want you to know this morning the Christmas story that we celebrate this time of year is a celebration because we have a God that is eternally existent but is not afraid to get down into the muck and the mire and the, and the darkness with us, church, in order to break into our situation. And if I'm Matthew, and this is what just should, the reason that the, the book of Matthew amazes me is it kicks off with it. It's not that it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. We see a lot of, 
a lot of names that are familiar in there. You see Abraham, of course. You see David. You see Solomon's name mentioned. You see jo- Josiah and all the some of the diff- Asa, some of the different kings. You see all of these different names that are laid out as the genealogy, as, as the human origin of Jesus. And he's writing to Jews so that Jews would understand and be able to look down through there and say, yes, he was related to this one. He was. It goes all the way back to the beginning because Jesus is eternally existed. But what I want to point out to you this morning and the main point of my message as we look at these characters, in the first six verses, there are four women mentioned in the gene- genealogy of Jesus. And the reason that that was so mind-boggling is that they didn't include women in their genealogy. The Jews did not put women. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, if you're reading Deuteronomy, if you're reading Leviticus, some some of the ones that I encourage you to read your Bible through a year from front to back, it would bless you and help you grow tremendously. But when you get to those parts of Deuteronomy, when it's just regurgitating genealogies, how many skip over those parts? Yeah. Of course we do. I'm like, I don't even, I can't even pronounce that name. I don't need to read it. But if you look at genealogies, they actually have some fascinating aspects of the Christmas story, and this one in particular. Because Matthew wanted to make this point. Not only is he the Christ, the anointed son of David, that will restore the kingdom, and not only is Jesus the one who will save the people from their sins, but he wanted them to understand that this God isn't just Messiah, but he has been announced as Emmanuel, God with us. And that is another amazing aspect of the Christmas story. You've heard Emmanuel many times, but to set your mind on something this morning, that God has in fact remembered his promise to his people because God is a promise-keeping God. The genealogy isn't just telling us names. It's telling us something about the nature of God here at Christmas time. That even if your story is one that's really messed up, I have a God that gets in the middle of messed up and brings redemption out of the hurt. He brings, he brings light out of darkness. It's amazing that God would come from heaven to earth and He did not dispel or get rid of the darkness and the trials and the difficulties. Most of us in our lives are trying to steer around the storm or trying to steer around the difficulty. And Matthew wants to lay out before the people that he's writing to and and people for thousands of years have read this genealogy and in the first six verses, there's four ladies mentioned that lived very, very Hard, difficult, forgotten, broken lives. So i got some good news for you this morning. If you're broken, Jesus can put you back together. If you're walking in in a season or a place, and I believe many of you are, that you are getting to a place maybe in life where you feel like, well, there's no real hope anymore. There's nothing really to focus on. I'm just kind of... I'm just kind of here. I want, to, I want the, the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart this morning that God has plans and purposes. If God can take a prostitute from Jericho and add him into the line of Messiah, how much more can he do with somebody who just says to God, God, I don't know how to figure it all out, but I'm yours. So we see here in the genealogy of Jesus, and you have to love this about the Word of God. It's not going, even, even in, the, in the New Testament, you see the thread of redemption weaved all throughout the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the culmination, the announcement in Luke 2, that today a child is born in the city of David. You'll find him wrapped in swallowing clothes, and you go worship him. And these uh, big burly shepherds, you know, David was a shepherd, right? 
his big burly shepherds went and found the Messiah. And what did they do? These big burly, tough, had killed bears and lions and maybe even people that were trying to harm their, their precious sheep. Big burly shepherds, they got down and worshipped the king of kings, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. David was a shepherd, right? David was a real man, wasn't he? I mean, come on, David would go out and kill 43 people, go home at night and write a poem about it. I mean, that was David. That was David. But I want to speak to the men for a minute. Men, you can be a real man and love Jesus with all your heart. As a matter of fact, you can be a real man that just melts in the presence of God because in the Christmas story, you see the shepherds as real men, burly, just, just everyday common folk was the first people to see the announcement that Messiah had been born, which this genealogy and the fact that the shepherds were the first to be announced to tells me that God isn't looking for the high and mighty and the lofty and those who think they're all that in a bag of chips. Come on. Yes. He is looking for those who will just come and worship him in spirit and in truth. Come and engage Him. Come and believe that He can take any messed up situation and redeem it because that is who He is. These men, these shepherds, these real men were watching over their flocks at night. And here, I love when Matthew records the story of Jesus because he does something so mind-blowing that we miss it in our modern context. But in the first century, it was revolutionary. He includes these women in the story. And as a matter of fact, in the first six verses of Matthew 1, there's four of them. And I want to tell you their story today. The first one's name is Tamar. Everybody say Tamar. You may not realize who Tamar is in the Old Testament, but let me just give you the Reader's Digest version so you can understand her dilemma. Tamar's dilemma was that she married and her husband first husband dies. Well, in Jewish culture, if your first husband dies, then it was on the one of the siblings, usually the oldest of the family, to take the widow as a wife and begin to produce sons. Well, she gets married again, and there's a lot in the story. As a matter of fact, the Tamar story, if I can just paint it in today's uh, language and vernacular, Tamar's story is a Jerry Springer special. Okay, If you've ever seen Jerry Springer, this would have been a Jerry, listen, this would have been a Jerry Springer special because later on in the story, because she's, listen, here's what she was. She was broken. She was forgotten. She was looked at by the people. I'm telling you right now, because the people thought, well, she's lost two husbands. She must be cursed. You ever see all throughout the Bible? This is why Jesus corrected them when they said, hey, Lord, which one sinned first, his parents or him, that he was born blind? And he's like, this has nothing to do with it. Don't we look at other people's lives and we begin to think, well, God must not love them. And we look at circumstances and equal it to God's love or not love, God's care or not care. And in Tamar's story, she took the, she took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and Tamar went and actually ended up lying with her father-in-law in order to produce offspring. A Jerry Springer type of a thing here. She was looked at as, as God's favor wasn't on her. She was looked at as broken. She was looked at as abused. She looked at as forgotten. Everybody say forgotten. You, Hey, listen, have you ever felt forgotten by God? Just be honest with me this morning. I absolutely have at times. Now watch. That's a feeling. Everybody say feelings. Feelings. All of your feelings are real, but not all of your feelings are true, church. Amen. Amen. All of your feelings are real and valid, but not all of your feelings are are true, and it's important to differentiate between the two. 
Tamar felt forgotten, but she had the God who held every moment of her broken life to the point where she is included for eternity in the genealogy and family tree of our Lord and Savior, the Messiah, the King of the world, the pre-existent one who it tells us very plainly in the Bible, He's always existed. And He always will exist. That everything in heaven and earth is held together by the power of Jesus' Word. That's how big, awesome, and incredible He is. Yet He's looking upon a woman named Tamar and has compassion on her. Here is the message of Christmas in the story and the genealogy of Christ. God is in the redeeming business. Everybody say redeemed. Redeemed. Do I have any redeemed people in the house today? I'm talking redeemed from the hand of the enemy. I'm talking redeemed from sin. Redeemed from your own mess ups and all your own hurt, pain, and everything else. Y'all, you have been joined to a royal family this morning if you are in Christ. There is royal blood flowing through your veins. You say, oh, pastor, that's other people. No, listen, you're either adopted into the family of God or you're outside the family of God. There is no in-between. You may have a dark past, but join God's family. And like Tamar, you can be included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Listen, you may have come from shame, but can I tell you, you can be headed for glory if you'll put your faith in Jesus. The only thing people thought when they heard Tamar's name was shame and bad luck. But can I just point out, she's in Matthew 1 because we can say from hindsight, look what the Lord has done. And in Matthew 1, a Jewish historian records a person we wouldn't include. I wouldn't include Tamar who had a Jerry Springer life through no fault of her own. She was just surviving. She was broken. She was hurt. She was despised and cast out. But if that explains or describes who you are this morning, can I tell you, the invitation from God is to come into His family. Come into His genealogy. And it wasn't just Tamar that was mentioned. She had a very checkered past. A lot of eyebrows would have been raised when they read Tamar. Rahab. Everybody say Rahab. Rahab is another... I, again, if it's me writing it, I'd be like, the Lord will be mad if I include the prostitute in the genealogy. Because church, that's exactly who Rahab was. If you don't know the story, the people of Israel are going into the promised land. The first place that they have to battle is one of the biggest, strongest, most, most intimidating cities of the day was Jericho. The walls were so high, the people knew that these Israelites, these nomadic people who, whose God is with them, he's been with them by, with fire by night and a cloud by day. We've, we've heard of the miracles in Egypt. We've heard of, of their, their ability and that, that God is on their side. So they close up Jericho and they send spies into Jericho. Joshua does because they have a battle to fight against Jericho. And they wanted to know about the defenses. They wanted to know how they were going to try to defend the city. So it wouldn't have been unusual for Rahab's house to have nighttime visitors, right? Because she would have been a prostitute of the city. So if you see men kind of looking around like this for nobody to be around. And they nobody's around so they quietly go down the street into the house of a woman very plainly of ill repute. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. And and sometimes I often wonder if when Jesus in Luke 7 is on his way to the cross, this is just a few days before Jesus will be crucified and pay for our sins, 
And I sometimes wonder if when he goes into the house of a man named Simon, Simon was a Pharisee, a leader. So in other words, he's a preacher. Pharisee Simon was a preacher. And I get the feeling the invitation to Jesus wasn't one that I wanted to worship him. I get the feeling with some of these Pharisees is they just wanted Jesus around so they could say, look what a big cheese I am. The great prophet has come into my house for dinner. Because when Jesus shows up, church, we see in the story that a common, and when I say common, this would have been Middle Eastern customs and Middle Eastern hospitality 101, that when they came in, you gave them some, some anointing oil for their head, you gave them a kiss of greeting, and you, you gave them the opportunity to wash their feet. Well, when Jesus comes, Simon just says, well, just come on in and sit down. In other words, sometimes we can forget that we are to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus because here's what happens in the story. They're enjoying dinner, Middle Eastern culture. They're reclining on one arm. They're enjoying dinner. And Simon's there. He's talking to Jesus, talking to the disciples. And in busts a prostitute, a woman of ill repute. And I'm sure Simon's first thought is, what if other people saw her walk into my house? Well, they're going to be like, what, what kind of party are they having over there? <laughs> Nobody wanted this woman around. Nobody wanted Tamar around. Lost, broken, forgotten. But we see in the story that we can really, our reaction to Jesus tells us everything we need to know about our own human hearts. Because in one seat you have Simon the Pharisee, who begins to question and question even Jesus' ability to know who is washing his feet with, her, with the anointing oil in her hair. In other words, she falls down in tears knowing, listen to me, knowing that she doesn't deserve to be at his feet, washing his feet with the, the expensive oil. Simon feels like, I deserve to be near to Jesus because of my religious position. She doesn't deserve to be near Jesus because of her sin and her adultery and the things that she's done. But can I tell you, the one who left justified out of that house was not Simon the Pharisee. It was the one who understood that she is a sinner that can just throw themselves down at the mercy of all my Almighty God, Simon says, he says right there in the thing, if he were really a prophet. And I found people that question those kind of things about God and Jesus all the time. Well, if God were really, if you're somebody that needs to have all your questions answered before you put faith in Christ, let me tell you something, you'll take a long time to get there. This woman wasn't worried about any of her questions answered. She wanted to honor the King of kings and the Lord of lords before he went to his death. And in church settings especially, we love the person because Simon would have been educated. Simon would have been, you know, somebody who was well thought of in the community. He would have been somebody that was probably well respected. And, and he, in other words, probably had a lot to lose by even maybe having Jesus in his house. But can I tell you what the world would respect and what the world would call knowledge and what the world would call education? The story there with the prostitute coming into the house shows us that the most important, because everybody has a reaction to Jesus. Everybody does. And if your reaction is like Simon where you simply say, well, thank God I'm not like her. 
If you sit, we've all done this. You sit in the, this sanctuary, you look at other people, and perhaps you think, thank God, why can't they just be more like me? When in reality, in the story, God's trying to get us to be like the woman of ill repute, like, like a Rahab that knew there was no hope unless God said that, yeah, Jericho's walls may fall, Rahab, but you have found favor in God's sight, and it doesn't matter what's going on around you, Rahab. You may have been a woman of ill repute. You may have had men in your house and done all these things, but now God's salvation has come to your house. Listen to me this morning. Not because of how good you are, but because of how good I am. The prostitute who, who, who wept and wiped the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ was a beautiful thing. In church, sometimes, especially during a Christmas season when the focus is on Jesus, hopefully, <laughs> right? I'm trying to get you there where it's not about trees and all the, the, the hubbub and all the busyness of the season. It is really, truly about sometimes just stepping back. And I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to do this. This isn't to sow any doubt in your heart and life. I'm just telling you that sometimes this man right here sits down and does what the Scripture tells me to do in this, to examine myself, to see whether I even be in the faith. To examine myself and to say, am I really even a Christian? Because sometimes, and I've been in the seat of Simon, and I've been in the seat of the prostitute like Rahab. I've been in the seat where I'm doing good, and I've got things together, and God's blessing, and God's moving, and God's doing things in my life. My family's starting to head in the right direction. My wife cooks good meals. All the things are going right. Oh, everything's just going perfectly. You have been cooking some good meals lately. I want to just throw that in there. She has. I don't know if somebody secretly taught her how to do that here at the church, but thank you if that was you. And I've been in the seed of Simon, and this this is more maybe an Easter message, but this was so heavy on my heart yesterday. Rahab shouldn't have been in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? Because she was somebody that nobody else looked at as anybody that could be used by God. And this woman who shows up there... And I've been in the seat of Simon where I've looked at other people and I'm like, oh, Lord, they've messed up again. Lord, they, they, they've done this again. They're back in the same place. What, whatever it is, I've been in the seat of Simon where I just kind of roll my eyes and think, well, if those people really knew what that person really does and they wouldn't even be near them. Do you know that's spiritual pride? And if Christmas should cure us of anything, it's that God, the God of heaven, the glorious one, the one who literally formed everything that you see because it tells us plainly that everything that was made was made in Him, for Him, and by Him. He is the eternal one. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the, 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 the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. All the things that the Bible teaches us about Jesus. And here he is, and here's Simon's attitude. And church, Rahab, yes, was a harlot. Rahab was somebody that should have been left out. But what the genealogy in Matthew 1 teaches us is not only can Tamar have a redemptive story, but Rahab can have a redemptive story. Because after she's found by these spies, she, she leaves her life, and that's important. She leaves her life of prostitution to serve and obey God from then on out. And you can read through that when you start reading Matthew and skip right by it that God can turn a mess into a miracle. Amen? Anybody in here has turned your mess into a miracle? 
If our reaction is like the prostitute in Luke 7, just to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus, then you're on the right track. You notice in that story, too, that the, and this is important, the Pharisee, the religious person who thought he had it all figured out, and really had, in my opinion, had invited Jesus just to say, oh, I had Jesus in my house, just as a, just as a little brag, I think. I don't think he really wanted to honor God. Because the reason I say that is because we can do one of two things in life. You can sit in one of two chairs. You can sit in the chair where you judge everybody else. Because notice, the Pharisees' eyes were never on Jesus. They were always on the people around Jesus. Have you noticed that? I have noticed that. that listen, her eyes were on him. Simon's eyes were on her. Can we all fix our eyes on Jesus this morning and understand that even if you have a past, even if you have a few crooked branches like me in your family tree, that God is a God of miracle, redemptive power this morning. It's a dangerous place for us Christians to ever get where we get to the place where we don't really feel like we need the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus. That's a dangerous place. Can I tell you something this morning? I need him every single day of my life. You say, yeah, 25 years ago I gave my life to Christ. I've just kind of been off doing my thing ever since. Listen, you need to examine yourself and say, am I in you, Lord? Am I following you with all my heart? Is there anything in me, God, that's keeping me from your redemption? I need God every day. And Rahab met God's redemption. She, she had to say, hey, look, Rahab, everybody knew me by Rahab. Oh, that's Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. God is in the business of changing people's names. Because she's no longer Rahab the harlot, but her new identity is Rahab the redeemed. Amen? I, used to, I maybe used to be Jason the alcoholic, but I'm not Jason the alcoholic anymore because I met Jesus in 1997. And I'm Jason the redeemed. My family still run into people up in my hometown of Chillicothe, and they hadn't seen him in 15, 20 years. And, hey, what about your brother Jason? And they're like, he's a preacher. And they're like, funny, what's Jason doing? He's a pastor. He ran into, my brother ran into one guy named Kevin that grew up with him. We literally were almost best friends for a lot of years. And he just shook his head, and he said, he used to be really wild. Aren't you thankful that you don't have to be called by what you used to be? That when God's redemption visits your life like Rahab, your city is no longer even Jericho. You are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and we're looking for an eternal city. We are on a journey like Rahab. Jericho is no longer my home. Zion is my home this morning. Because He's a God of redemption, of the broken, of the weak, of the tired, of the poor. That's who He came for. He didn't come for the Simons that looked down their nose at everybody else. He came to redeem that which was lost. He'll leave the 99 like we sang and go after the one. Our God is a good God. Our God is a merciful God. Our God is an awesome God. He can take a Rahab and turn him into the genealogy of his very, the Father's very Son. Verse 5 is Ruth. Everybody say Ruth. Ruth. Now say it like you mean it. Ruth. Ruth. I love Ruth. She, now when we finally get to Ruth, you can kind of begin to see that, well, Ruth. I, I, I've heard of Ruth. Ruth would have been living in another country called Moab. And she marries a Jewish man, so that means that her mother-in-law is Jewish and follows the God of Israel. The true God. The living God. But they're living in another country, and the, the, this uh, 
woman's son marries Ruth. Well, Ruth loses her husband. And I love the story because Ruth is looking around and she's like, you're my last living relative. Her mother-in-law was her last living relative. There's a famine in the land that they're living in. There's no food. There's no water. There's no, there's, it, it, she, she's about to be left behind. So she does what any of us would have done and looks at her mother-in-law and says, where you go, I'll go. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Well, they make their way and she says, so be it. Come with me. But we're going to have to be gleaners. And it, it, in God's mercy, he put a law into effect that the people of Israel would have to leave. And I love how the Bible says it. They would leave handfuls on purpose in the fields. Why was that? Because God cared about the people who would come along behind. Can I tell you this morning? God leaves handfuls on purpose all over your life, and you're missing them. You're missing them, church. You God, handfuls on purpose. And she meets somebody named Boaz. Boaz owned the field. Boaz, as the Old, Te- Old Testament all the way through is, every story is a picture of Christ. Because he notices her. He notices the difference. Now, here's what I want you to catch, because you've probably never heard this before. But I studied this years ago. I've never taught it. I've never talked about it until today. But the amazing thing about her was that she was something called a Moabite. Well, if you study who the Moabites were, they came from originally from Jews. And, but they had gone off and, and created their own culture and created their own deal. The main thing about Moabites, and this is what God said about Moabites, and here's why he said it. Because the Moabites were known for two things. They were known to take their babies and to sacrifice them to a god named Molech. And literally the statue of Molech was just two arms, and I'm going to be PG here with everything I'm saying. I've, I've, I've really told myself if there's any kids in here. because Don't you love that the Bible's real? I do. It's like... It's real. And they would put that baby. You see, it was an honor in their culture for them to have a son to be able to sacrifice it to this demonic entity. And don't think that that's not all going on today. Amen? But here's what God, listen to this. Here's what God said in his word. If you come across a Moabite in the law, you stone him to death. I want you to think about something for just a minute. Think about this, okay? The word of God, the law says, you run into a mobile. So she's taking a huge risk with her own life by even joining herself to Naomi to go into the the nation of Israel. God's hand is on her. Can I tell you this morning, if you think God loves rules more than people, you've got God wrong. Okay? Because the genealogy of Jesus... has a Moabite in his genealogy. That didn't blow you away like it blew away me. In other words, Ruth comes along and she meets somebody named Boaz. And she feels like her life is, again, broken, left out. Don't have anybody to take care of me. I don't have anybody to provide. I don't don't even have a family. I've joined myself to my mother-in-law and gone into this place. And she is a Moabite. She is somebody that should have, listen, she's somebody that should have been pushed out. Naomi should have looked at her and said, 
you cannot go because as soon as you step foot in the nation of Israel, according to our laws, you should be drug out into the town square and stoned. Can I tell you this morning that every single one of us present here deserve judgment from God? Can I tell you that every single one of us were born under a curse because of the fall all the way back in Genesis? But I say like Paul, but thanks be to God. (laughs) who is rich in mercy, who is good, who provided a way, and that way is called the person of Jesus Christ. But don't, lose, don't miss the fact that there's a Tamar and a Rahab, and yes, a Ruth, who was a good godly woman who, who, who was following the God of Israel, but all intents and purposes should have come under judgment. But why wasn't she? Because God can turn anything around. God can take somebody out of this situation and place them in that situation. So you say, in in Jesus' genealogy, there's a woman named Ruth that married a man named Boaz in Bethlehem. And this ancestor of Jesus was a Moabite. And the Moabites were supposed to be stoned. God shares his home with the underdog and the undeserving is what that teaches us. Are you hearing me? God opens His doors. God shares His home. God's invitation is open. And the last one this morning is Bathsheba. Everybody say Bathsheba. We know this story. That's probably the most popular one that is mentioned in those first few verses of Matthew 1. Very popular story because we know that the story is that when David says when when it was the time of year when kings go out to war, and as soon as I read that for the first time, I thought, "Uh uh-oh. David wasn't where he was supposed to be and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. And I knew what was coming next and I never read this story. I was a brand new Christian. I'm reading through the Bible my first year of salvation, just reading through the main stories. I wasn't reading through it completely, but I came to that story where he's on the rooftop and he looks over and sees Bathsheba bathing. And he knows she's married. He knows he's not supposed to do this, but he looks at his, his guards, he looks at his people and says, hey, go get her. And let's not paint a rosy picture. I'm going to keep this PG for the sake of Sunday morning. Keep it very PG. But let's just paint a realistic picture that if you're summoned by the king and kind of pushed through the doors into the king's bedroom, that was not something that Bathsheba wanted to happen and consented to happen. Are are you following me in here this morning? Okay? My point is, and listen, this sin brought tremendous judgment not only on King David, but it brought judgment upon the whole nation of Israel. Because in doing that, she becomes pregnant, and then David actually goes to the next step of murder. And you got to love the prophet of God, because the prophet of God finally shows up and looks at David and says, hey, there's this, there's this shepherd, and this other shepherd just came and took one of his little sheep. And David gets indignant, because he remembers his days as a shepherd. David gets indignant because he knows the heart of his God. Again, he could kill 43 people, and one day go home and write a poem about it. He's a man's man. He was, he was somebody who wasn't going to let this take place in his kingdom. And the prophet Nathan just points his finger and I says, you're that man. Bathsheba, the one who was taken advantage of, the one that was in the redemption story of Christ. And if you see a pattern emerge in these four people, let me tell you the pattern. They were looked down on. 
They were barren. They were bewildered. They were deserted. They were depressed. And church, God used it all. And what God produced from all that was the perfect Prince of Peace. From all that? From the Jerry Springer stories? This probably would have made Jerry Springer blush. And listen, the reason that some of us miss out on the joy of Christian living, everybody, your best attention for the next few minutes because I'm going to start to land the plane, so to speak. And this morning we're going to pray for Eric and his wife, Brooke. And I'll explain more why we're praying for them and sending them off for a season. And we're going to do that in just a minute. But let me get your attention. Buddy, if you go ahead and come to the piano, begin to play, please. Before, listen. You don't get a Jesus without a Rahab, a Tamar, a Bathsheba, and a Ruth. That's why Matthew says, I'm going to include. They didn't include women in genealogies. They didn't do it. They didn't include all that. And the reason that some of you will miss out on joy this Christmas season, listen to me real closely. This is, this is a word for you, from my heart to you, and, and I believe from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to tell you during this Christmas season. The reason why some of us miss out on the joy of Christian living, we miss out on the joy of the season we're celebrating, we miss out on the hope and the joy that should be present in our lives every single day, is, listen to me, church, there is no testimony without a test. We don't get revival without repentance. We don't get peace without storms. Listen, you don't get resurrection power without death. Jesus has not come to eliminate my or your pain, trials, storms, and difficulties. But instead, Jesus, we see in the genealogy in Matthew 1, that Jesus came to bring a process of redemption out of the trial, pain, despondency, and forgottenness and brokenness. These, you see, every time that I felt abandoned... Every time that I felt alone, every time that I felt like God didn't come through like I thought he should come through, every time that I felt like I was in that place like they were for the 400 years of complete silence and darkness and it seemed like God and they had to be looking at each other and maybe they didn't verbalize it because they were good Jewish people and they continued to pray and they continued to believe that Messiah was coming. But I guarantee you the majority of them had kind of started to think maybe God has forgotten us personally. And maybe he's forgotten our nation because we're conquered. We see evil all around us. There's great darkness covering the land. And any time that I have been in those places and been in those seasons, I have lived enough of life with God. How many have walked with God for quite a while now? Let me just see your hands. You, you've walked with him. Listen, we can all look back and see those times that those places that look like the darkest places, God did His best work. God did His best work. Those places where I felt alone, those places where I felt, felt like God was turning a cold shoulder. Listen, God is a Redeemer. His redemption comes out of the darkness. His miracle comes out of the sickness. His, mir- His miracle for finances for you comes out of you trusting and believing and continuing to give even though you don't know where it's going to come from. A few weeks ago, I saw this on social media. I can't remember where, which one it was. I do a little bit of Facebook. Twitter's my main source of news. So I'm on Twitter a lot. It may have been Twitter. But the question was asked, And I really began to ponder this. I actually felt like the Holy Spirit just kind of came in on me and said, think about that for a minute. I was sharing this with somebody just the other day, and I want to use it in my sermon today. But the question was this. 
Would you choose, number one, to go back in time and to be able to fix all of your mistakes or $10 million? And man, I began to really, again, I felt like the Holy Spirit just kind of moved in on me. And I began to think about it. I'm like, man, $10 million. Y'all never see me again. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Like, we used to have a pastor, and he got $10 million. And never, never saw him. Got on a boat down in the Keys, and he's gone, but gone. So I began to really ponder that. And what I'm about to say isn't going to make sense until I tell you the second part of it. I said to myself, what mistakes? In church, this man right here has made thousands of them. Thousands. More than I would ever care to stand up here and admit. But my next thought was, but the Lord, it has made me who I am today. And I wouldn't trade who I am today and the people that are in my life because, yeah, I could have gotten married early, earlier. I could have married Natalie, Leah. You know who Natalie is. <laughs> Y'all want to hear a funny story? We had just started dating, literally. We hadn't even gone on our first date yet, but we were talking for a period from December to April. Well, some nice people in the, that I became friends with, they were an older couple actually from Holland that had been living in the States as citizens. And I just became friends. They invited me over Thanksgiving. I just became good friends with them. And I, had a, I was going to have a little birthday party. And this was very innocent, very innocent. But I was also friends with and talking to a young lady named Natalie. And I was talking, you guys, I'm paying a pay. I'm gonna, just going to stop and just quit. <laughs> You're like, were you dating too? No, no, no. Our principle at school was that we, we spent time together in groups and became friends. Young people, if you're in here still, yes. you want to make sure you can be friends with the people you marry. Amen? Yes. Listen, because you get to a place that friendship is so valuable to you and the spiritual depth and connection is something I wouldn't trade for all the money in the world. But I invited Natalie and Leah to my birthday party at a restaurant with about 15 other friends. And this older couple look at me and they're like, what are you doing? He has this thick accent, you know, this like German Dutch. Jason, what are you doing? Like, man, I want them both. And Leah had baked me cookies. He made me call both of them and uninvite them to my birthday. It's a miracle Leah and I are still even here. Because she got together with all her friends and they ate those cookies and drug my name through the mud because I had uninvited her to our... So that was another mistake that I made in that time. So I've made thousands of mistakes, church. But I wouldn't have my wife, wouldn't have my kids. And my kids drive me crazy. They drive me nuts. So I said to myself, not what mistakes. I began to think of ones I would change and ones I would do. But the story of the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew is that God can even take the messed up and the broken and the despondent and the hurt places and all those things. And it's a miracle. But God says that He works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. The genealogy of Jesus teaches us that there really are no really horrible situations or circumstances because even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil because Messiah, Jesus, the risen one, walks with us. 
I've talked about my grandfather a lot, and he discipled me for uh, a couple years before he passed away, and I'd just gotten saved. He he and my grandma probably prayed more for their grandkids, which there was on our side of the family. There was four in my family. There was three in my, his brothers. There was four. It was 14 boys on his side, 14 of us. No, no females. It explains a lot about our struggles in our marriage for the first year. <laughs> Lee and I have been married 20 years, about nine of them happily. Amen? <laughs> and I was a brand, I'm talking brand new Christian. I, I don't know much about God. I don't really know who he is. I don't know his character. This man that I'm meeting with had walked with God at that time for about 50 years. And his testimony was absolutely incredible. Uh, born the oldest of 12 in Kentucky, a poor area called Johns Run, Kentucky, up in the hills of Kentucky. And my grandfather had taken uh, notice of a young lady named Dolores that he was courting and he was asking out on dates. She wouldn't agree to it because my grandfather wasn't saved. My grandfather and his brothers ran moonshine through the hills of Kentucky. They, everybody knew the Hank's name up in the hills of Kentucky. He was tough. He was like those shepherds I was talking about. He was tough. He was rough. He carried a knife the whole nine yards. And there was a man who went to church with my grandmother that one night after church as they're all walking back home, he tried to pull my grandmother into the woods and take advantage of her. Well, when my grandfather found this out, he shows up at the next church service with his knife. He's going to kill this man. He comes in the back and he sits down on the back pew. And not only did he not kill the man, he got saved, laid his knife down at the altar, and preached for 43 years. God is a God of redemption. There's something that was bothering me tremendously talking to my grandfather because I, growing up, and at this point I'm 23 years old, the, the most wonderful, godly, loving people. And I was raised rough. I, four of us, my parents got divorced, money was tight. My mom's trying to raise four wild and crazy boys, all the things. And I'd watched his character and his integrity through all the driven all over. He oversaw churches in Ohio, Wesleyan churches in Ohio for the number of years that I really knew him. And I saw him, in other words, I saw both my grandparents sacrifice for God and stay faithful to God. He stayed faithful to God when my grandmother, godliest woman I still know to this day, Dolores Hanks, got Alzheimer's. And then at the same time, he got diagnosed with congestive heart failure. Out of the blue, healthy, was going into, literally had just retired, and like a month after he's retired, he felt winded, and they said, you're going to die within a year. Well, my grandfather is a Hanks, just so you know who you're dealing with. We're stubborn. Amen? He willed himself to live another three years. Just sheer will to take care of my grandmother, to be there and take care of her. So I'm sitting across from him, and this is why I say to go back and change everything. Maybe I would change my grandmother getting Alzheimer's. Maybe I would have spent more time with my grandfather. Maybe I would have. The what ifs of life can absolutely drive you crazy, can't they? They can. And I said, Papaw, I said, I got a question. I said, I'm really struggling with you and I talking about a good God. That you and my grandmother, who are the godliest people that I know, you're both so close to the Lord. I know you prayed me into the kingdom, literally. I said, I don't understand how he can be so good and you can struggle so bad with your health. And he pushed back from the table and he had these piercing blue eyes. 
And he looked at me and he said, Jason, he said, I have to, and he pointed in, we were sitting in a place where his bed and his corner of the house and the bathroom was probably from here to those chairs, so about 10 feet to the bathroom. And he looked at me and this impacted me so tremendously for the rest of my life. He looked at me in the eyes and said, Jason, I need God to get from that bed to that bathroom. And what he told me next is what I want to leave you with before we pray for Eric and Brooke. He said, I wouldn't trade it where, where I am right now. I wouldn't trade it for anything else in the world. And sometimes we get to the place where we've lived enough a life, church. Go ahead and stand with me this morning. We've lived enough a life, church, that we look back. And just like in the genealogy in Matthew one of Jesus Christ that has those dark places. It has those those people that we look at and say, man, a prostitute and a Moabite. Moabites were supposed to be killed. They worship false gods, just all these things. When you look back over your life, when you belong to God, can I tell you, there's nothing unredeemable. You may have been hurt as a child. You may have been abused as a child. You may have had bad parents. You may have had a tough life. I want to tell you this morning, I, we serve a good God who can even take those, those dark places and bring them into the light of our Messiah, our King, Jesus Christ, and see redemption out of them. Amen? Amen. Brooke and Eric, if you guys would come up here, and as they come, Brooke and Eric have been offered a position as youth pastors up in Covington, Georgia. And they went and interviewed just a couple right at Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving, right before Thanksgiving. And we're going to be blessing them today and sending them off with this church's blessing that God will absolutely use this couple for His glory and His good. Come stand right here, guys. We are so incredibly proud of them. They, uh, Eric went off to Bible school and, like a lot of people do, met his, met his wife, and we're so glad of that, that they share the same heart, the same vision, and they have ministry in their lives. And we're so proud to be a part of this from here. And look forward to seeing them again. But would you stretch your hands out this way? We want to love on them. And today I want you to just, youth, you guys, come up and tell them thank you for teaching you guys over these last few months. And uh, let's, let's pray and bless them as they go. Heavenly Father, we today, Leah, would you come up and join me? We today, Father, bless them. They have been blessed as they have come in here. And Lord, we know that they will be blessed and favored as they go out. Lord, I pray today that you would go before them and prepare the way. Not just the way in a natural sense, but Father, I prophesy and pray that the Lord is even preparing the hearts of those young people, guys. I see Him working and moving. And right at the right moment in time, Eric and Brooke, that you're walking in, your steps are ordered by the Lord. Do not doubt that. Do not doubt when you run into difficulties, when you run into resistance, and when you run into problems. Because the Lord says He has already figured out the answer before you ever step to Him today. He's already got the answer. You just need to listen for Him. So, Father, we pray a fresh anointing on both of them. May from the top of their head to the soles of their feet, may they have a fresh fire and anointing. And, God, we believe that you're sending them to Covington, Georgia, to see that youth group catch on fire with your presence and your glory. That there would literally be a shift there of even the atmosphere around them and that church. That, God, they are going to do your will in your way and your timing. So, Father, today, as the pastors of this church, and, Father, along with my wife and the congregation at CCC, Father, we pray over them that every need would be met. 
that the anointing would increase and that, Lord, you would establish them right there where they are and birth a wonderful ministry through the work of their hands. Bless the work of their hands. Bless the fruit of salvation. Let revival break out in that church and in that body, Father, we pray today. God, we ask you today that you would meet every need and we send them off with the covering of this church today. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Let me bless you today before you go. Don't forget, tonight, when you come in, just find your seats and squeeze in. We're expecting a pretty big crowd. If you're able to park all the way in the back in the grass, you drive a truck. I'm going to look at it before I leave, but it's high enough. I don't think it'll be really wet. But any larger vehicles, if we could put them in, especially if you come early, just park right back there, and that'll make room for everybody else. Amen? Father, I bless Christian Center today. I pray that, Lord, the goodness of God would literally follow them from this place. We say like David that surely mercy and goodness will follow us all the days of our life. Father, bless them today. Bless them with peace. Bless them with your protection. Surround them with your holy angels until you bring us back at the appointed time. We love and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.